Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Here with Joel Belfer, Mint Condition. Uh, we're going to hear his origin story, but first, thanks sponsors, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins, Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Creating, Beckett Authentication. So welcome, Joel. I want to hear your origin story. You're in your 20s, and that's, right. that's very encouraging. That 25 is prime. But what that means is you were born after the junk wax era. <laughs> right. So right. tell us a little about your uh, collecting experience, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Background on me, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's about 15 minutes from Philadelphia, but also 30 minutes from Mill Hill, New Jersey, which is where Mike Trout is from, which really ties into my collecting experience. I think the origin story for me with collecting is growing up, always had cards around the house from my dad and my older brother, and I credit them for getting me into collecting. And then I also credit my father for giving me a bit of a business sense. In middle school, I started realizing how big of a market there was for these cards. It wasn't just collecting, but it was also buying different trade shows that you can go to online. So in middle school, I teamed up with a buddy. We combined our collections and started selling online, selling in person, selling eBay, forum sites, all that. And that's where I really got into the buying and selling aspect um, of the hobby. And I've done that ever since. I still continue to buy and sell through today. Uh, but there's also an investing side for me. Uh, one of the first boxes I opened was a 2009 Bowman Sterling box. And I pulled a Mike Trout, Mike Trout being, you know, right near me yep. in Millville, New Jersey. But he wasn't Mike Trout at the time as we know him today. But I felt local kid, let's start collecting him. And he was the first player I really started collecting seriously. And to this day, I haven't sold one Mike Trout card uh, that I collected when he was in the minors. So that's my origin story for how I got into the hobby and how I participate on the collecting and investing. And then secondarily, through college and through the beginning of my professional life, the hobby has taken a little bit of a backseat given my focus on my career. I went to the University of Michigan, got a degree in finance and accounting, and for the last three years have worked in finance, first in investment banking and now in private equity. And actually over the last year or so, I see the hobby blowing up and I, I think, how can I be part of the hobby, but also maintain my full-time job, which leads into the Mint Condition newsletter. I think Scoreboard was headquartered in Cherry Hill, wasn't it? That's, that's right. I believe so. A classic where Ken Golden, wasn't that where Ken, I think so. And his dad and him started it. And I think they were in Cherry Hill, but their big years were in the early mid nineties, but then that kind of played out. And Ken obviously resurrected to, to great success with his auctions. He's always been a great marketer and promoter, but I think that was happening in, in, in Cherry Hill. But Millville, is there a better way to get started than in 2009? <laughs> Picking on Mike Trout. How does it get any better than that? If you were in Dallas and you're whatever, 13 years old, and it's 2018, and you think, we're just going to take a flyer on this Luca guy in basketball. But right, everybody right. else was doing it, but nobody else was doing it with Mike Trout in 2009, 10, 11. And that's the special thing, and that Mike Trout wasn't even the first pick of the Angels in that year. They drafted Randall uh, Grichuk in front of him. They were worried that Trout wanted too much money, he wasn't going to sign. So he slid in the draft. So he wasn't even the top prospect coming out that year. Quite a story to to be the first player that I collect. And like I said, I've held the cards through today. Haven't sold one card. Okay. You don't have to sell them, but since you're a finance and accounting guy, can you not securitize those or borrow against them through one of these other entities in the industry? There are people who would vault your good cards and uh, extend you credit or something. You don't have to sell them, but you, have you thought about that? I've thought about that a bit. I think more so on the fractional side, I've really thought about it over the last year, two years, where you see 
high value cards being listed and the seller being able to retain a substantial portion of ownership in the card. So that is something I have considered. I haven't pulled the, the trigger yet on it. Around securitizing it, I haven't thought about that. I think save that for a rainy day if it's needed and I go into the well and use the cards. But I think the fractional piece is something that I'm more seriously considering. And I think the consideration is, do I really want to even sell a portion of it? I honestly think I am a finance individual. I have great focus on the investing side of it and on the returns. But because I've held it for so long, there's, of course, a sentimental aspect to it as well. So that's why I haven't really pulled the trigger on any of those. Okay. Again, I get to do these podcasts and I get to ask any question I want to ask. And it depends on the person. But I've been listening to other podcasts and I forget whether it was John Newman or Mike Summer. Somebody was talking about shorting or maybe Chris McGill. What would happen if there was people shorting? But in effect, you could short your Mike Trouts by fractionalizing and putting them up into the fractional space and selling half your interest with the hope, the perverse hope, that you could buy back that half at a lower price later. You'd affect be, be sure. So you'd get to keep half the card. It's still majority. You could keep 51%, let's say. But if the value went down, at any rate, just interesting. Fractional brings a real interesting dynamic to our industry. And I think it's here to stay and it's going to grow. But one thing I haven't seen, I don't know if you've commented on this, but with the fractional uh, offerings that are out there, uh, I, I don't know if there's been an analysis. If I was younger, I would do this, but you're younger, so you can do this. But whether or not the performance of the fractional assets is better or worse, is it correlated with the uh, retention percentage? of the owner. If somebody's keeping 50% or 20% or 80% or whatever, does it provide more stability, let's say? Or is it a feeding frenzy that they want to get some of it? Or maybe it's unrelated. But I think it's fascinating what's going on and the creativity that, especially with these different fractionals, each one's going to do it their own way. Yeah. I think the thought on that is, are you familiar with Alton Insights? You know, one of the Yeah. So I think they've done a ton of analysis on this front. I've been in touch with their CEO, Russell Lieberman. Great guy. I think great company. They partnered with Golden Auctions recently. And I think if he's listening, I think this is analysis that that they should run. And I'm sure I'll definitely follow up with him about that because I think that's a great point. You see it in the public markets today. If you have a single individual holding 70%, why would the public want to buy in if this single individual really just determines the course of what happens with the company? Same with the card. You talk about buyout. So the main way so far, in my opinion, on how these investors who are buying up the fractionalized shares, that's how they're making money when buyouts come in. And if you have an owner who is only selling 10, 20%, he effectively decides what happens. So I think that's a a very important consideration. And yeah, I would love to see the results of of that analysis as well. The other aspect of it in collectible and alt and, and rally and all these, I think there's too much money in sports cards now that all of them, even the art people are going to be thinking about doing this. But the other thing is, I think there's two customers for the fractionals. One is the customer that wants to make money. And the other is maybe the buy and hold. They don't want it to be transacted. They don't want to cash out. They want to be able to say in perpetuity that they own a piece of a 52 mantle. And so whether or not it ever cashes out, not a big deal to them. And and I think we've seen that because we've seen some cards that there's been offers to buy out and the collectors have rejected it because then they get money, but they don't have the the fraction of the card anymore. And that probably depends on the quality and the type of asset. If it's a commodity, well, then just sell it, sell it, take the money and plow it in someone else. But if it's a unique asset, 
That's my criticism of the uh, fractionals. As long as they stay up market with things that are really where you're never going to have one of these. It's not a market basket of things that's a good deal. It's do you want to participate? You want to have a piece of something that you're never going to be able to either afford or perhaps even find. That's right. No, that's a great point. I think you especially see it in rally. I think today they're listing the Declaration of Independence. I think that's something like you said, you own it, you hold it, you pass down the ownership to your kids and say, I'm granting you a piece of the Declaration of Independence. So I'm right there with you. What we've seen though, is the market in the fractional space continues to grow. Rally just raised $15 million. Money keeps flowing into the sector. Big names, not just on the sports card side, but on the entertainment and media side who Rally got in there. They got wheelhouse in there. So I think it's awesome to see what's going on in the fractional space, not just in terms of what they're listing, but what else are they putting together? You have Collectible putting together the Mint Collective in January, and I just had Rally partnering with Wheelhouse on some media and entertainment launching a show. So they're not just making it about the investing experience, they're making it about really how significant some of these items are. I, I think the whole industry is uh, going to get bigger but not just more sales of sports cards. It's going to get bigger and broader. I think the ways you're going to be able to enjoy and participate in the hobby are going to expand. Because if Fanatics has its way in these other uh, fractionals, there need to be more collectors. They need more wallet share and more wallets. I, I don't put it past them. A lot of people love sports. And the ones that don't love sports love entertainment or other kinds of things. And it's going to merge. Absolutely. Tell us about your mint condition. Uh, are you weekly? Because it seems like you were weekly for a while. So I was weekly. Had to switch a little bit due to my full-time work. Especially during COVID, the finance world really blew up and work got crazy. But I wanted to stay connected to the hobby, not just buying and selling cars, but in a different way. But really just sat down, thought about how can I contribute to the hobby, combining knowledge both of, of the hobby, but of business as well. Getting an undergraduate business degree, working on Wall Street, and that's how the idea for, for Mint Condition came about. It really starts out with a summary of one of the leading stories in the hobby and then my perspective, breaking it down from a hobby and business angle, whether that be breaking down the competitive landscape in the fractional industry, whether that be my suggestions for what Tops and Panini should do in lieu of fanatics entering the industry. So I try to provide a unique perspective on the stories that you read about and really just also providing the latest updates on the auction side in the fractional industry, and then a little bit of around the horn, some of the major headlines that you might have missed. I mean, I've gotten a great following so far, which is very encouraging. I've gotten individuals from across the hobby, whether it be at Tops, Collectible, Blackstone, Fanatics, all who are becoming subscribers of the newsletter. I mean, I've been able to fortunately connect with so many of them and meet so many people through this newsletter, which is awesome. And yeah, I was doing it initially pretty regularly a few times a week, had to scale it back a little bit just because of work demands. Definitely try to do it as much as possible because I love it. I love writing. I love staying connected to the hobby and this is how I think you do an excellent job. I enjoy getting it. I think my listeners are wondering, yeah, Dr. Beckett, you probably can afford it, but how we can't afford uh, Joel's mint condition. Oh, wait, it's free. <laughs> That's right. It so, is free uh, to everybody. It's, uh, one of the best deals in the hobby when I was doing the magazines weren't free. That had a lot of content in there, but you're providing excellent fresh content and uh, providing it free. Are you getting hit in a full-time way or a part-time fractional way? Are you uh, being uh, contacted? Because I, I think you're on the cutting edge of some things and it seems some of the players would be interested in, in either your insights or you being on their team, part-time or full-time. First off, appreciate the kind words and you subscribing and reading the newsletter. I think in terms of being headhunted, I think I would say, yeah, I have had conversations with multiple different companies in the space. This has opened up some conversations. 
about opportunities down the road. And I say down the road because I still do being in finance. I think there's a benefit to working in private equity. There's tons of skills to learn in the industry. And I recently just joined the industry. So I, I do see a benefit in, on Wall Street for, for a little bit longer. But I think this newsletter has opened up doors. Um, it's opened up you know, connections. It's opened up conversations that I think will continue to be maintained over the next you know, handful of months, few years, and we'll see what's going on when the time is right. I think the hobby is continuing to evolve and today's opportunities might not be the same as the opportunities in six or 12 months. So I think uh, that's also a big consideration. A lot of companies are entering the space, raising money, uh, but the, the landscape might look a lot different in a year or two. So I think that's also a big consideration for me. I do get contacted from people that listen and they love the industry and they'd love to work in the industry. And what you've done, if they copy, not exactly, they need to figure out what their gifts are. Your finance and accounting and all that and the private equity stuff serves you well to do this kind of newsletter, but you've created visibility for yourself. Some of my listeners that would love to work in the industry, in fact, instead of cold calling the card companies or Nat Turner, just do something of value that people say, hey, they'll contact you. So keep up the good that's work. Right. And again, that's a good example for other, not just 25-year-olds, but 35-year-olds, 45-year-olds, and 55-year-olds. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, listeners. We'll be back again tomorrow with another episode. The man in the house of cards.